Good morning. Whoop. Good morning. Welcome. We uh, have a number of announcements in our announcement bulletin. We good there, Jake? Okay. A number of announcements in our announcement bulletin. I'd encourage you to take a look at those later on. Um, some things that are uh, coming up in the week ahead. Please take note of those. But right now we have the opportunity to worship. So let's begin our time of worship by joining our hearts together in a moment of silent prayer. And then we'll conclude by praying together. Father, we thank you that you have brought us all here for this day of worship. Remove from us all distraction. Allow your word to be proclaimed faithfully and by your spirit. Cause us to be transformed by it, that we might give you the praise and the honor that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Let us stand together. Beloved, the Lord calls us to worship this morning with these words from Psalm 18. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Congregation of our Lord, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing praise together to him from number 312. Hymn 312 from our Psalter hymnal, we gather together.
In Isaiah 44, the Lord speaks to His people and declares, Hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, The Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. When we look at God's law, especially that summarizing commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we see those commands, we recognize that of ourselves, we can't stand before Him. We would be immediately condemned. But God assures us that it is not by our merits, it is not by our abilities, the things that we have done that are meritorious. No, He redeems us. He provides for us. He holds us fast for He has claimed us as His own. And it falls to us then, not to earn or attain or accomplish, but to trust to trust the Lord through Jesus, His Son, that He has done what is necessary to reconcile us to Him, and therefore we live a life of faith and of gratitude. Let us therefore confess that our hope and our strength are found in Christ as we sing together a rendering of Psalm 86, which we find in Selection 164 from our Psalter Hymnal, 164, the first five stanzas.
We glorify the Lord, first of all, because that's why he made us, but also because we recognize that everything necessary to give us peace with him, he has accomplished for us. And therefore, we devote ourselves to serving him, to loving him, to honoring him. And to that end, he's given us his law. A law that reminds us at the very start that we, like Israel of old, once were enslaved. But God has delivered us, freeing us from our slavery to sin and to the world and to death, that we might devote our all unto him. And so he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. In short, we are called to devote ourselves to God. Again, because that's why we were made, and that is the most effective and powerful way we can show him our thanks. But we cannot and we will not unless the Lord is at work within us. So we need to ask him for the grace and the Holy Spirit that we might do that. So let's pray together, lifting up our hearts before the Lord. Father, we thank you for everything that is necessary that we might live before you, that we might be at peace with you, that we might fulfill our purpose in life, you have accomplished. Father, we are not worthy, nor could we ever begin to earn the love and the mercy that you have poured out upon us. And so, Lord, with your people throughout the generations, we confess our desire to show you our thanks and to lift high your glory. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts, teaching us daily to marvel at your goodness and your grace. 
enabling us to see truly where sin and rebellion continues to abide within us, that we might reject it and that more and more we might devote ourselves wholeheartedly to you. Father, you have blessed this church with so many children. Today they begin again their catechism and Sunday school lessons having been introduced to the classes last week. Lord, as they dig into their studies of your word and of the truths that we confess from it, enable them to delight in the knowledge of you and to grow in their faith toward you. That more and more, day by day, they might recognize the fullness of what you have done to redeem them and desire to live a life that's pleasing to you. Protect them from the snares and the lies that that Satan has used to fill this world. And Lord, cause them to delight in your word. And we pray for our young people and our young adults as they're beginning to get a sense of how you would have them use their gifts as they're moving more and more into the independence of adulthood. Remind them daily of who they are in Christ. Cause them to delight not merely in their work, nor in their friends, nor in their entertainments, but in you and in the knowledge of you and in the ability to serve you. Make it to be their deepest joy. To know that they are yours and that they are able to serve you with all of their gifts and all of their abilities. Lord, give them strength of heart that they might turn earnestly away from the sins that so readily rise up within. Surround them with those who love you and who would hold them accountable. And cause them, Lord, to trust in you truly and deeply. We pray for our adults who are single, Lord. For the gift that you've given them, the opportunity to serve you without distraction. Cause them to do so. Using their their gifts and the opportunities you set before them. To serve you and to serve those whom you've set before them. And likewise for our, sing, or our married adults, Lord, we pray that you would, would teach them to use their marriages in a way that displays the selfless love of Christ to the world and the deep and abiding devotion of the church for Christ. Lord, knit them together and cause these marriages that you have established among us to be remarkable for the selflessness and the wholehearted love with which you fill them. Protect them, Lord, from the snares and the temptations by which Satan would destroy that beautiful institution. 
And use them, Lord, to raise up godly offspring who know, who love You, and who see in their parents a living image of Your love. We pray for our more senior saints, Lord, whose children have left the nest. Father, we pray that You would bless and strengthen them, that You would enable them to set before the church an example of selflessness and devotion unto You. Lord, in all of this, continue daily to renew and strengthen Your people by Your Word and Spirit, so that more and more we, Your saints at grace, might might demonstrate to the world what You have done, how richly and perfectly You have provided And Lord, open our eyes to the people around us in our lives, whether at work or in our neighborhood, among our family members, or even here at church, who need you desperately, and in whose hearts you've been at work, who await only those who would come alongside of them and explain the hope of the gospel. Lord, give us eyes to see those in whom you've been working. Give us the courage to speak and the wisdom to know what to say. Enable us to weep with those who weep and to laugh with those who celebrate. And to so love them that they would long to hear the reason for the hope within us. Father, we bring before you all the needs and the concerns of this congregation. Continue to provide for us in the midst of our physical trials, as well as our emotional and spiritual difficulties. Lord, we pray for uh, continued blessing and strengthening for Sherry as she uh, deals with an ailment of her eye. We pray that you would uh, give her healing and strengthening in that. We pray for Dan as he undergoes uh, cancer treatment, radiation therapy, and also Joel as he Uh, undergoes chemotherapy for his leukemia. Lord, we pray for healing for each of them and for the ability to recognize how you're at work within them, that they might testify to those around them of your sustaining grace. Lord, likewise for Linda, as she uh, deals with health issues, we pray that you would bless her in that and we thank you for the strength that you've given her by which we might be able to worship together. We pray for Keith and Lori as they've been dealing with a variety of health issues. Lord, strengthen and encourage them, we pray. And likewise for other members. Lord, you know those who are struggling with weakness of the body. Those who are dealing with depression and anxiety and doubt and grief. We pray for those who are pregnant. We pray that you would bless the children within to strengthen and encourage them and also those who long to be pregnant, that you would provide for them, strengthen and encourage. And Lord, we pray for our members that are preparing for marriage. What a blessing to see them looking forward eagerly to that time when they can be united with the one that they love. Lord, equip them well for that, that their marriages might be founded and established upon your word. And Lord, we pray for our friends and our family members beyond the church, 
We thank you for bringing Charlie's brother-in-law, Norm, back to strength and health, that he might return home and, and begin working around the house again. Lord, we pray that, that you would continue to bless Norm. We pray for Judy's sister, Marcia, uh, as she deals with the effects of cancer. We pray for Travis's cousin, Nick, also undergoing treatment for cancer. Lord, we pray for, for each of these that you would strengthen, encourage, and bless, and that you would enable us to minister among them. Also for, for John's grandson, Barrett, and others, Lord, whose needs are in our hearts. May your power and strength be evident in their lives, and may we have the boldness and the wisdom to come alongside them and encourage them. And Lord, Lord, we pray that you would watch over your church in every place where it gathers. Cause your word to be faithfully proclaimed and work by your spirit within the hearts of your people that they might rise up and call you glorious and good. Enable your people to be strengthened in their faith and well-equipped. Cause them, Lord, to go forth from their worship eagerly resolved to tell others who you are and what you have done and to devote all that they do in life to to serving you and glorifying you. Now, Lord, we pray that you would make it our delight to study your word and to sing your praises together. Cause us to rest well from our labors, to delight in our church family this day, and to be able to enter the work week refreshed with the knowledge that we have been in your presence. Now we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to look together to God's Word, we're going to sing from Psalm 94 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal, 94 Selection B, and we're going to sing the odd-numbered stanzas, the odd-numbered stanzas, 13579 of 94B.
that confession. The Lord is my rock, invincible, strong. He punishes all who perpetrate wrong. Our God will repay them for all they have sown. But he will have mercy and love for his own. That very much is what we find in our text for this morning. In Exodus 15, we find God's people standing on the far side of the Red Sea. Finally, fully delivered from their enemies, from Egypt, who had long enslaved them. And their enemies, who had pursued them into the sea, who had sought to reclaim their slave labor, are gone. Drowned in the midst of the sea. And this, the text that we find before us this morning, this is their proper response. And therefore is our proper response to the deliverance God has accomplished for us. So we're going to start looking at verse 26, uh, just so that we can recall the context, and then we'll read chapter 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. 
You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, with you, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Amen. Beloved people of God, our King, this Bible from which we have just read is not a textbook intended merely to recount historical facts. Now, to be sure, what we read here is the true and factual history of what God has done among and for His people. However, it is far more than a dry collection of facts. This is the testimony of what God has done in the presence of His people. These are the eyewitness accounts that God has led His people to gather. These words reflect the love and the joy and the absolute wonder of His people as they stood and beheld the amazing power of God worked on their behalf that they might be delivered. So the words of these 66 books, they are absolutely true and trustworthy and factual, yes. But they also are human. Perfectly inspired to reveal the heartfelt joy and wonder of the people of God. Thus it is that occasionally we encounter words of amazement and celebration, such as we find here in Exodus 15. God's people had just endured a tremendous test of their faith. Having been delivered from Egypt in what had to have been a night of absolute chaos and pandemonium throughout the land. They had walked sort of a circuitous route until they ended up at the the shore of the sea. And there they sat all night, a pillar of fire and cloud behind them, separating them from a massive army. An army that wanted to reclaim them, an army that wanted to harm them, and on the other side, a sea. And God, through Moses, commanded them, walk toward that sea and trust that I will deliver you. And they had watched 
as the wind blew across that sea and caused the waters bit by bit to separate until a pathway appeared for them. And they, by faith, were called to walk down through the midst of that sea, the waters rising up, massive walls on each side. And then they had witnessed as God fulfilled His promise, not only delivering them, but absolutely ending the enemy behind them. And suddenly here they stand at the entrance to the wilderness, their slavery cut off behind them, the future before them looming up far greater than anything they had ever experienced. And they do the only thing they can do. They worship. They sing. They proclaim the greatness of the one who has delivered them. And that's our theme. And folks, it's a theme that should mean a lot to us, should mean everything to us, because this is what we are called to do every Lord's Day, indeed every waking day, celebrating what God has done, the deliverance He has wrought, the freedom that He has given us, that we might worship and serve the One who has given us life. God's people celebrate in song His glorious deliverance, thereby setting an example for us whom He has delivered in Christ. As we consider together that song and and what it declares, we see first of all how they proclaim God's triumph over His proud enemy. But to see that, we need, we need to pause just a moment and recognize sort of what we're seeing here. We don't know how exactly this song came about. I mean, we know Rose, Moses wrote it and taught it to the people. Did he write it before they even passed through the sea? Or was it something that came to him as they were walking through the midst of the water? Or or did he pause to pen it as they stood watching the waters cascade down upon the army of Egypt? We don't know. But what we do know is that this song is an absolute masterpiece of poetic literature. Now, Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry. Our poetry tends to be a poetry of rhyme and meter, right? So rhyme, we understand the words that sound like one another, especially at their ending, but also of meter. So like in our songbooks, we see these numbers, 8787, which means that the lines have eight syllables, then seven, then eight, then seven. That's meter. Hebrew poetry generally doesn't have that. What they do is they rhyme ideas. They include parallelism that might be synonymous or it might be contrary, contrasting. And one of the ways they do it, one of the more intricate poetic devices they use has come to be known as chiasm, named after the Greek letter key or X, in which the parallelism descends upon itself. So the outer parts are parallel to one another and then moving inward. And what that does is it focuses the reader's attention on what's right at the heart. 
Well, in this song, we actually have a triad, a threefold chiasm, such that each of the sections that form our points are a distinct chiasm with the, the focus right at the center of each one. In the first section, the heart of the message is found in verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now, kids, you probably know this by now, I hope, that when we see Lord in all capital letters, that reflects the the covenant name of our God, the name that is unique to him, Uh, the name that's sometimes rendered in song, Jehovah or that would have been pronounced by the Hebrews as Yahweh. Right at the heart of this first section is this confession, the Lord, Yahweh, is a man of war. Yahweh is His name. And that proclamation is precisely the victory that God had promised from the moment that Moses was called. When He first called Moses, God told him back in Exodus 3, He said, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God wanted his people to know who he is. That he is not one of the gods of the Egyptians. He is not like the God of the Canaanites. He is the unique God. He is Yahweh. The God whose very name means He is. He exists. He is the eternal God. And so later when Moses approached Pharaoh, he came declaring the name of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh rejected the true God. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let them go. Egypt's king refused even to acknowledge the Lord as the true God. And of course, he then immediately punished Israel for daring to ask for release to go and worship. The people complained to Moses that he had made things worse. But God told Moses to answer them, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and and I will be your God. And you will know that I am Yahweh, your God. And moreover, he assured Moses, Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. And I'm going to do wonders in the midst of Egypt. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. So the Lord had promised not only would Israel know him as the true and living God, but Egypt would have no doubt that this is the true God, that this is the one who has true power. And now Israel, standing on the shore of the wilderness, looking out at the sea that has returned to its place, seeing the bodies of Egyptian soldiers wash up upon the shore, they confess what God promised to do, that he has done. 
And therefore they confess, verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He is the one who saved them. They didn't do it. Moses didn't accomplish it. The Lord is the one who delivered them. And Egypt, well, they have no doubt that Yahweh is the true and living God because, verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. In fact, their king who refused to acknowledge Yahweh he now lives at the bottom of the sea. And therefore, throughout the rest of their song, they will not name Pharaoh. He's gone. He's done. Egypt's king will not be named, for the Lord has triumphed over his proud enemy. Verse 1, the horse and its rider he has cast into the sea. And therefore, verse 5, the floods cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Do you see what God has done here? The king who exalted himself, refusing even to acknowledge the true God. He has been cast even into the depths of the sea. The one who exalted himself has been humbled to the depths. But the Lord who was scorned, the Lord who was rejected, he has demonstrated himself to be the true king, the true God who dwells in heaven in all his power. In that, beloved, we see how this song of Moses is really a beautiful prophecy of Christ. It's no coincidence that in verse 2, God's people call him my salvation. The Hebrew word there is Yeshua. The Hebrew form of the Greek name, Jesus. God's deliverance at the Red Sea foreshadows the far greater deliverance yet to come. In Jesus, God came to His people in their enslavement to sin and death. They were helpless to break the chains that bound them. They were crying out to God because of their misery. And yet, the world and even the leaders of the church at that time, they rejected Him. They saw the acts of power that could only have come from God. They heard the wisdom that reflected all of the wisdom of God, and yet they refused Him. They scorned Him. They even sent Him to death. But the one whom they scorned and rejected and refused to know rose up victorious over Satan, over death, over sin, over the world. And He became our salvation. Just as Israel passed through the Red Sea, through that death, and were brought into life, so we in Christ pass through death on the cross and arise unto eternal life through the one who once scorned has been exalted above all. In proclaiming God's triumph over His proud enemy at the Red Sea, Israel was looking forward to the fulfillment, to the greater deliverance that would be accomplished by the Lord in Christ. And then, Moses leads them to proclaim God's triumph through His glorious power, which is what we see in the second section. See, this second section is a recounting of the battle itself. And right at its very heart, verse 9 we recall the boast made by God's enemy. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. Notice who he expected would receive all the glory. Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh, one of the chief gods of Egypt, Pharaoh, who demanded the worship of the divine, Pharaoh declared that he was the one in his pride who would destroy all who opposed him, who would reclaim this slave labor and with it the glory of Egypt. Is this not a vivid image of the enemy of all of mankind? Egypt's king was a living image of the great serpent who brought about our sin. Like the devil and his servants, Pharaoh made war against God and against his people. He sought to lead all the world in rebellion against the creator king. But our God wields nature itself as a weapon. He comes with the wind and the water of the sea rises up into two walls. Driving back the terror of the deep, enabling his people to pass through the midst of death itself. Again, God sends the wind, and the waters close in upon the enemy who pursued them. Pharaoh and all his forces sink beneath the weight of his pride. The Lord is the one who wields the wind and the waves, even as a soldier wields his sword. And therefore, Israel proclaims how God's glory is revealed in his judgment. Verse 7 They speak of God's adversaries, literally those who rise up. Those who rise up. Because the enemy rises up with pride. He seeks to be exalted over the true God. But instead he is consumed like stubble. He is brought to an absolute end. Egypt's king proudly declared that he is God, taught Egypt to worship him as a god. And yet which among Egypt's gods is majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? There is none. Not one of them could withstand the power of Yahweh. Not one of them could withstand the living God. And so Moses teaches Israel to confess, verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. None deserves the glory for the deliverance God's people obtain other than the Lord. His right hand is glorious to deliver. Brothers and sisters, the example set by this song is the example that we must follow. We live in America, a land where pretty much everyone believes they're going to heaven. But why? Ask them why they believe that they will go to heaven, that things will be fine. And most will say, I did pretty well. I did more good than bad. I was a pretty decent person. I was certainly better than... Sounds like Pharaoh, doesn't it? I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill. But those who truly belong to the Lord know... I can do nothing good. Salvation is from God alone. His right hand must obtain life for me. 
because none other will suffice. Only the Lord Himself, in the person of Jesus His Son, only He could deliver us from death and usher us into the glory of heaven. And not only does He provide for our salvation, He alone provides the provision we need day by day. He alone provides the healing that sustains our body. He alone gives us the loved ones who surround us. He alone entrusts to us the work that delights us for everything that fills our life and that assures us of eternal life. It is from the hand of God alone. And therefore with Israel of old, we must proclaim God's triumph through His glorious power. Even though we don't yet fully see the deliverance for which we long, we know that because of Christ and in Christ, He has delivered us and He will deliver us. All of the battles that we ever will face belong to Him. Isn't that amazing? When the, whether the battle is against that ancient serpent, Satan, or the fight is against the demon of depression, or we wrestle against the terrible power of temptation, or we wage war against the enduring evil of disease, whatever the battle, it belongs to the Lord, and He will bring us the victory. So expect His victory, and even as you await it, proclaim God's triumph through His glorious power. But then Israel completes his song. Now turning away from the sea and toward the promised land. In the final verses of this song, God's people show that they understand their journey has just begun. Many miles stretch out before them. Many years must they now follow after the Lord to the place where he will lead. There are challenges ahead of them that they can't even begin to fathom yet. Enemies wait to confront them. Land still must be possessed. But because of the victory they have just seen, they face all of that with absolutely confident faith, proclaiming God's triumph on behalf of His beloved people. That's our final point. Look at the center of this last section, verses 14 to 16. Israel names the enemies they know to be waiting before them. Philistia, Edom, Moab, all the nations of Canaan. They're all fierce. They're all warriors. Any one of these would be a worthy adversary. And yet, Israel knew these nations would surely hear what the Lord had done. They might not have had the internet, but they had the power of gossip. And even though this happened out in the wilderness, there were still people who saw. There were still people who would know. Word would travel. Certainly word would travel back to Egypt, what had happened. And from Egypt up to Philistia, from Philistia to Canaan, from Canaan to Edom and Moab. The people would hear... Not just that Israel, this slave people, had escaped, but that they had escaped in an absolutely unheard of fashion. And one of the great world powers 
had had its army not just decimated, but utterly and completely destroyed all of their chariots sunk in the sea, their king whom they regarded as a god, no more. Their soldiers reduced to corpses floating on the waves of the sea. The peoples have heard, and how do they respond? They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Why? Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. God was already winning the battle against a people they had never even seen. Because he was conquering their hearts. Forty years later, two spies would enter the first city they came to, the city of Jericho. They would talk with the lady of the house and she would describe how the people melted in fear of the Israelites. Why? Because four decades previously, They had heard how God conquered without even one of them raising a sword. How God had conquered the great nation of Egypt by casting a sea upon their head. They don't know that yet. But they know the people will hear. They know that God will conquer. And they have confidence that God will conquer on their behalf because, verse 13, they know that they are the people whom God has redeemed. Verse 16, they are the people whom you have made your own. You have purchased. They know their deliverance didn't come without cost. Someone had to devise this all. Someone had to bring it to pass. And that someone wasn't Moses. It wasn't Aaron. It certainly wasn't Miriam. That someone was the Lord. He delivered them to that precise spot in the Red Sea. He cast the waters back. He led Egypt in. He caused their chariots to falter in the midst of the sea. And He sent the waters down upon their heads. He did it all. And so they confess, verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. They are confident that God will lead them to the end because God is the one who has led them up to this point. And it's by his strength, by his wisdom, by his absolutely indomitable power that they have been freed. Folks, this confession of Israel is absolutely commendable. That's rare. We heard last time from 1 Corinthians 10 how much of what Israel did was an example as a cautionary tale for us. When they rebelled, when they doubted the Lord, when they worshipped their false gods, the Lord allowed all of that to be recounted for us so that we would not follow after their footsteps, so that we would see the cost of their rebellion. But here, here we see an example that we must follow. Because we too stand in the wilderness. We too face 
battles. And we don't even know what they are. We haven't yet seen many of those enemies. Parents, you might face battles. You probably will face battles for the soul of your children. Many of you will battle against sins and temptations that seem utterly overwhelming to you. Some of you will be brought down into the depths of depression and anxiety from which you feel you cannot escape. Others will face slander and threats breathed out by enemies that you cannot see. But you can face every one of them with the confidence that Israel confessed. Because you know the greatest enemy has already been defeated in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And that He sits at the right hand of the Heavenly Father, even now interceding on your behalf, guiding you, directing you, leading you, giving you assurance that you will see the corpses of every one of your enemies washing up on the shore, as it were. He will conquer. He will provide. You won't even have to lift a hand. And at the end, you will be ushered in to the glory of which Israel sang. Notice when they sing of Canaan, it's an idealized Canaan. They're not dumb. They know that they still live in a a fallen world. They understood that the land of Canaan, that land of promise, it was meant to typify, to picture something far greater. It would still be a land filled with sin. It would still be a land where they would struggle with their own rebellions. But it pointed to something far greater. It pointed to the new heavens and the new earth. Look how they describe it. They look forward to being guided to God's, verse 13, to His holy abode. In other words, they longed to be in that place where they were in the presence of God at all times, where they would be able to behold His holiness. They longed to be, verse 17, at His holy mountain. Mountains in Scripture are places where, where God and man meet. And they longed to be in that place where they would be able to meet with God. It would be the place where the Lord, which the Lord made for His abode. This is actually a different word than the one translated abode in verse 13. It comes from the same root as the word Sabbath. They were looking forward to entering into God's holy rest, to the place where He would give them rest from their sin and rest from their enemies and rest from their anxieties, into the place of His sanctuary, which His hands have established, the place where they would worship and give God glory and know Him even as they had been known. Folks, that's what we look forward to. That's what we long for, a place where sin is no more, where there are no more enemies, there are no more lies and rumors, there are no more temptations. A place where the Lord and His glory is all and is over all. And between us and that place is a great wilderness and unknown battles. But the Lord who has led us through our greatest victory, He will not falter in front of those battles but he will bring us through and we know that because verse 18 the Lord will reign forever and ever our God is king of all 
He is king of all people, king of all nations, king of all ages, king unending and without limit. This king has claimed us as his own, just as he claimed the church under Moses. None was able to prevent the fulfillment of, their, of his promises to them, and none will be able to prevent the fulfillment of his promises to us. And therefore this song must be our song, this confidence must be our confidence. This confession must be on our lips. God has given this song of Moses so that our faith might be assured and that we might be able to confess it on the basis of the deliverance that he has wrought in Christ. Therefore, let us sing. Let us confess. Let us tell others eagerly of how God has delivered us, how God has provided for us, how all of the deliverance was at His hand, and how therefore we are absolutely confident that we will get to heaven, that we will know the new heavens and the new earth, that we will serve God in the absolute perfection of His holiness, not because of what we have done, but only and entirely because of what His glorious hand has worked. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you and you alone are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no enemy who is greater than you. There is no roadblock that you cannot overcome. You and you alone will provide all that we stand in need of. We give you the glory. And we pray that you would give us the discernment and the courage and the strength to give you the glory always, confessing for all to hear that it is in you that we trust. It is in you that we rest. It is you whom we celebrate. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Beloved, in response, let us confess that no matter what the battle is, that battle belongs to the Lord. As we stand and sing together number 545 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal, number 545.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have provided so perfectly for us. We pray that you would receive now these tithes and gifts that we bring to you. That you would use them to bring glory to your name and receive them as a token of our thanks. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song this morning is number 142. Number 142 is a rendering of Psalm 74. We'll sing all the stanzas.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.